Please turn with me in your Bibles, if you would, to the Gospel of Matthew. This morning we'll be looking at Matthew chapter 21, verses 1 through 17. Before we read that together, let's pray together. Father, we thank you for our good and gracious King. We thank you for the Lord Jesus, who is our Redeemer King. We pray that as we turn to your word this morning, that you would teach us more about our King, that you would give us eyes to see him in all of his glory, that you would give us faith to believe in him, to rest in him as our King and our Savior. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Matthew 21, we'll read verses 1 through 17. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethphage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, and on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up, saying, Who is this? And the crowd said, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. And Jesus entered the temple. And drove out all who sold and bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. He said to them, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. And they said to him, do you hear what these are saying? And Jesus said to them, Yes, have you never heard out of the mouth of infants and nursing babies you have prepared praise? And leaving them, he went out of the city to Bethany and lodged there. Anti-heroes have gained popularity over the past 20, maybe 40 years of course, artists and musicians who have a kind of anti-social persona are a, are a kind of anti-hero, and that's nothing new. But now we have the musical Wicked and uh, movies like Cruella and the TV shows The Sopranos and Breaking Bad. Even Batman, who mid-20th century was a do-good detective in 1986, became The Dark Knight. We like anti-heroes because they are not perfect. Uh, we can relate to them. They, they seem to be more honest and more real and more raw, more true to life than the Superman of yesteryear. 
And yet nowadays we have what someone has called anti-anti-heroes, the TV character Ted Lasso with his unending optimism. Uh, He's still broken, but he's good through and through. And I bring this up because uh, when you think about heroes and anti-heroes and anti-anti-heroes, what kind of a hero is Jesus? I mean, the answer, of course, is none of the above. Uh, he, he doesn't come as the good guy to beat up the bad guys, though he does win the day. Neither is he an anti-hero, flawed and gritty, or an anti-anti-hero, broken but trying. You see, Jesus is preeminently good, but he comes to be broken. We can't sympathize with him, but he came to sympathize with us. Jesus is a hero unlike any other. And of course, the best part is, unlike all those others, he is real. The Bible doesn't use the word hero. Of course, it uses the word king. Jesus came as the king, the king of peace, not to put a Band-Aid on the problems of this age, but to confront and restore as a foretaste of the age to come. In light of that, we're going to look at at Jesus' kingship as we see it in Matthew 21 this morning. And we'll see here the the fact of Jesus' kingship, the manner of his kingship, the goal, the revelation, and the end of Jesus' kingship. You can see those five points in your bulletin. Uh, First, the fact. Uh, The story of the triumphal entry is one that many Christians know well. Uh, Jesus, the Sunday before his crucifixion, enters into Jerusalem riding on a donkey. The people throw down their coats before him. The children sing, Hosanna to the Son of David. And this Sunday is sometimes celebrated as Palm Sunday uh, because people also cut down palm branches and laid them on the road before Jesus as a kind of red carpet welcoming him into the city. Why are they so excited? Americans have never been this excited about a king. Uh, Politicians of all kinds are suspect. But the whole idea of kingship suggests power, and power in our minds is pretty much always abused and misused. We are much more about self-rule than royal rule, autonomy rather than monarchy. Why are these Jerusalemites so excited? Well, they're excited about Jesus because they are oppressed. And the people think that Jesus might be the one to free them from the military power of Rome. Jesus calls himself the Lord in verse 3. By riding in on a donkey, Matthew tells us that Jesus is fulfilling the, the prophecy in Zechariah of the coming king. So the crowds sing Hosanna to the son of David, proclaiming him a legitimate king in the line of King David. And on top of that, the crowds say that Jesus, in verse 11, is the prophet, Uh, perhaps meaning the prophet that Moses spoke of in Deuteronomy 18.15, the one who would come after him. And so the crowd see Jesus as this foretold prophet king who is going to come, defeat their enemies, and put things right. When you think about Jesus, what, what do you want from him? They wanted a military ruler who would come and conquer. What do you expect of Christianity? A better life, belonging, answered prayers, a moral nation. Lots of people have expectations of Jesus, but the real question is not who do we think he is or what do you want from him, but who was he really and what did he come to do? And so as soon as we talk about the fact of Jesus' kingship, we have to talk about Jesus' manner as king. The crowds were right that Jesus is king, 
but he is no ordinary king. And so point two, the manner of Jesus' kingship. As we said, Jesus comes into Jerusalem riding on a donkey. And there are at least actually two Old Testament precedents for this, perhaps more. Uh, the first, though, is in 1 Kings 1, 33 to 35. And, and there in 1 Kings, an elderly King David is explaining how to set up Solomon, his son, as king. And he says this, Take with you the servants of your Lord and have Solomon, my son, ride on my own mule and bring him down to Gihon. And let Zadok the priest and Nathan the prophet there anoint him king over Israel. Then blow the trumpet and say, Long live King Solomon. You shall then come up after him and he shall come and sit on my throne for he shall be king in my place. And I have appointed him to be ruler over Israel and over Judah. So Solomon, the son of David, was proclaimed king by riding through Jerusalem on David's mule. Not a horse, not in a chariot, but on a mule. Solomon's name, of course, uh, means peace. And unlike David, who was a man of war and whose reign was established through war, Solomon was relatively a man of peace. His reign was established through this simple act of anointing at this Jerusalem spring. And so Solomon, the king of peace, entered into his kingship by riding on a donkey. And now Jesus does the same. He is the king of peace. Now, if we had trouble putting the dots together, uh, we could turn to Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9, which says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Now, some have wondered, by the way, uh, why we are told in Matthew that both animals are brought to Jesus, the donkey and its colt. And uh, the, the reason is likely this. Uh, Mark tells us that the colt had never been ridden. The mother would be there then to steady and calm this unbroken colt who was being ridden for the first time in a crowd of dancing, singing, shouting people. And when in verse 7 we're told that Jesus sat on them, some have misunderstood that, uh, that refers not to the two animals, as if Jesus simultaneously rode two animals into Jerusalem, which would be pretty silly, uh, but it refers to the cloaks that were laid on the colt. He sat on them, these cloaks that were put on the colt. But it's actually, it's the next verse in Zechariah that clarifies what all this means. If you keep reading in Zechariah chapter 9, verse 10, we read, I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem, and the battle bow shall be cut off, and he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. You see, Jesus doesn't come into Jerusalem on a chariot. He doesn't come riding a war horse. He doesn't come with battle bow in hand. He comes riding on a donkey, a lowly beast of burden. He comes as the king of peace to speak peace to the nations. So Jesus is a king, but he is a king of peace. He comes not lording it over those in his care, but humbly on a lowly beast of burden. And I want you to notice here that the king of peace is not a king of uh, domination, but a king of humility. He doesn't come with a sword, at least not yet, but on a donkey. And what this means is Jesus did not come to, to meet the expectations of the crowd. They wanted a Jewish king to defeat Rome, but the pe people's nationalistic patriotism was wrongheaded. Notice uh, co-opting religion for politic, uh, political interest is nothing new. The people were doing it right here with Jesus. 
But Jesus' entry into Jerusalem was not politically ambitious. That doesn't mean it wasn't politically significant. Jesus has come to be king, just not the kind of king that people were looking for. He's not the hero they wanted, though we'll see he is the hero that they need. The fact of Jesus' kingship then and the manner of his kingship as humble and riding on a donkey lead us to the goal. What is the goal of Jesus' kingship? If Jesus has not come to free Israel from the oppression of Rome, why does he come? What kind of a king comes and doesn't fight? What kind of a king leaves his people in the bondage of their enemies? Well, what we see here is that the king of peace is not a king of uh, domination, but the king of peace is not a king of passivity either. Uh, No, Jesus comes to restore us to the Father. And what does Jesus do once once he gets into Jerusalem? The first thing he does, Matthew tells us at least, is he goes into the temple to drive out those doing business in the temple courts. The temple consisted of a number of concentric spaces. In the middle was the the most holy place where God was symbolically enthroned above the Ark of the Covenant. Outside the most holy place was the holy place where only the priests could come. Outside that was the, the outer court where ceremonially clean Jews could come to present their offerings to the priest. Outside that was the court of women and outside that was the court of Gentiles. But it was here in the court of Gentiles that the Jewish traders and money changers did their business. It was here that they could purchase the necessary sacrifices. It was here that the bankers had set up shop to change over their money to the proper currency for a fee, of course. And there were two problems with what was going on in this court of Gentiles. One was their prices were highway robbery. Uh, Jesus calls it, quoting Jeremiah, a den of robbers. It's like the, the price of food in Disney World. Once you're there, you don't have much of a choice. They've got you. But second, they were doing this in the court of Gentiles, which means the Gentiles could not worship. Jesus, quoting Isaiah 56, says that God's house should be a house of prayer for all peoples. But the Jews were stopping the Gentiles from praying. That, too, would probably be like trying to have your quiet time in the middle of Disney World, right? Or at least in the middle of a busy marketplace, which is pretty much what it was. And so Jesus comes in to to drive out the sellers and turn over the bank tables and the seats of those who sold pigeons, which were the offering of the poorest of the poor. Now again, think for a minute about what's going on here. Jesus comes as the king of peace, not a king of, of domination. He doesn't come with a sword to slay his enemies, but not a king of passivity either. He, he does come to conquer, but he doesn't march to the palace door to overthrow the king. He marches into the temple. He doesn't occupy Wall Street, right? He occupies the temple courts. He refuses to let people transact business there. Jesus doesn't come to judge Rome, he comes to judge Israel and its leaders. The fact that the people were looking simply for political liberation was part of the problem. Remember what the temple was for. Uh, The temple was where God met with his people. It was a place for communion with God. God wants to draw us near. But both sin and suffering keep us far off. The people's individual sin was dealt with by the sacrifices, but the sin of the religious leaders, that was still keeping people far off as well. And so Jesus comes and drives the merchants off. But then we have this little note in verse 14, and the blind and the lame came to him in the temple and he healed them. 
Why is that so significant? Why, why, why does Matthew point that out? Well, first, there's some evidence that the blind and the lame weren't allowed in the temple. Uh, that's not a biblical command, as far as I can tell, but a, a man-made rule. Of course, in Leviticus 21.17, Aaron was told that none of his children among the priests could perform the sacrifices if they were in any way blemished. So any kind of physical deformity kept one from full engagement in the temple. But here is Jesus healing the blind and lame in the temple itself. Jesus not only opposed those who hindered others from drawing near to the Father, he also welcomed the rejected and restored them to full fellowship with God. And these things all uh, tell us uh, what Jesus is about and they foreshadow what Jesus is about to do. Now, Jesus is a king who does come to conquer, but he doesn't come to conquer through a sword. He comes humbly riding on a donkey, not to overthrow Rome with war horses and chariot. And yet he does come confronting, confronting the merchants who are more interested in making a buck than encouraging worship, and confronting the religious leaders who were complicit in the merchant's sin. He comes to restore worship by cleansing the temple and cleansing the people that they might draw near to God without blemish. This is what Jesus is about. How does it foreshadow what he's about to do? Well, Jesus comes to conquer, but not through the sword, not by domination, but through submission to his Father, even to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus comes not to kill his enemies, but to die for them. And through his death, he cleanses the new covenant temple, the people, Christ's church, that we might be without spot or wrinkle in his sight, holy and presentable to our Father. And Jesus enables us then to enter into fellowship with our holy God through his blood. What keeps you from drawing near to God? Do you stay back because of your sin? Jesus came to cleanse us and restore us to the Father. Do you keep others away because of their sin? Jesus said he came not to call the righteous but sinners. Do you keep others away by your behavior, distracting uh, yourself or others from real worship by pursuing the business of this age? Set aside time. Withdraw from the business of the present age on the Lord's day. Draw near to the Father and help others do the same. Jesus came to restore you to your Father. Whatever your sins, whatever your past, whatever your guilt or shame, come to Jesus and draw near. As is so often the case, the people's hopes in Jerusalem were too small. They wanted a king to come and put down Rome. But Roman rule was really just one in a laundry list of problems with the present age. Uh, There is Roman rule and family breakdown and societal breakdown and political turmoil and sexual turmoil and racism and misogyny and hunger and homelessness and joblessness and loneliness and barrenness and sickness and death. Could Jesus have defeated Rome? He certainly could have. Uh, He he said at one point he could call an army of angels to come to his aid. But Jesus came as king of peace, not to put a band-aid on the problems of this age, but to confront and restore as a foretaste of the age to come. Jesus came not to deal with the surface issues, but to deal with the root, the problem of sin and our alienation from our Father. We want our problems fixed in the present age. Jesus comes to give us a whole new age. So he dies to this age at the cross, and he rises to enter a new age in his resurrection. And now he offers us a place in that new age, in his kingdom. You know, it's like we want to keep dumping money into a house that is falling down around our ears, 
but someone comes along and they offer just to buy us a whole new house. And Jesus comes to bring something better than Band-Aids, the hope of a new age, one not with a sword, but through love and death and resurrection. You know, oftentimes we talk about freedom as Israel wanted freedom from Roman rule, but our eyes are so often on the freedoms of this age rather than the freedom that the gospel brings. The people in Jesus' day wanted a liberation movement. They, they wanted a freedom fighter. And we are tempted to fight for rights that can be won rather than receiving by grace freedom that cannot be lost. And the moment you say our, our freedoms are being threatened, you're not talking about Christian freedom. Christian freedom is something that cannot be lost that no one can take from you. The freedoms that are threatened may be good, they may be helpful, they may be important, but they are not the freedom that the gospel brings. No one in power can ever take away your freedom in Christ. Christ brings something better than liberation from Roman rule. He brings liberation from guilt and the power of sin. Our sights are often set too low on freedoms that can be lost on the good things of this present age that are perishing. Now, that's not the end of the story. Jesus did not come uh, the, the first time to free us from political powers, but to free us from sin. Uh, Jesus did not come the first time to kill his enemies, but to die for them. But I should say, that's not the end of the story. If you keep reading in the scriptures, ultimately, peace does require the putting down of one's enemies. Uh, you, you can't protect the chickens unless you kill the fox in the hen house. Jesus comes first with an offer of peace, an offer of reconciliation, but Jesus will come a second time. Christians call it the second coming, the return of Jesus. And at that time, Jesus will come with a sword. That's what the scriptures say. And he will be riding a war horse. You can read about it in Revelation 19. On that day, Jesus will assert his power as king. He will put down the oppressors and free his people from every last enemy, even death itself which Paul says is the last and great enemy. Again, we set our sights too low. Do you want liberation from Rome and the troubles of this age, which is passing away, or from sin and death into an, an eternal life that will never end? Of course, none of this changes the facts. Jesus' second coming doesn't change the fact that at his first coming, Jesus was this counterintuitive king. He doesn't fight as expected. He doesn't kill his enemies, but dies for them, which brings us to our next point. Uh, we've looked at the fact of Jesus' kingship. He is the king in the line of David, the, the manner of Jesus' kingship, humble, riding on a donkey, the goal of his kingship, nothing less than restoring us to our Father. Next, let's look at the revelation of Jesus' kingship. I uh, listened to an interview uh, recently with Rick Rubin. Uh, if you don't know who that is, come up to me afterwards. I'd love to talk about it. Uh, but I, I, I listened to this interview with Rick Rubin where he said, great art divides. You either love it or you hate it. And there is something polarizing about greatness. Now, the same is true with the greatness of King Jesus. At the beginning of Easter week, the crowds sung to him songs of praise. By the end of this week, the crowds will be crying out, crucify him. Some loved him. Others plotted to put him to death. Why is that? Because Jesus is the king that's hidden in plain sight. Jesus is the, the predictable and yet totally unexpected king, hidden in plain sight. Notice first, Jesus was predictable. He was predictable because he was predicted. The prophets said that Jesus would come. They even said he would come like this, riding on a donkey. This is just one of, of dozens of prophecies fulfilled in the last week of Jesus' life. He was predicted and yet 
totally unexpected. The people praise him as the son of David, but they have no idea what is about to happen. They don't expect the Messiah to come and die. They want a king, but they don't get the significance of the king riding on a donkey. Those in power, of course, refuse to see who he is. He's a threat to them. He comes undermining their systems of power, casting out the money changers, welcoming the lame and the least and the lost. But the people, some of the people at least, they they want to believe, they feel the weight of Rome, even if they don't realize the weight of their sin. And the children sing. When asked, who is this? The crowds answer in verse 11, this is the prophet Jesus. And they have it half right. This is the prophet Jesus. This is the prophet to come, the one Moses spoke about. He is a prophet, but he is more than a prophet. He's right there, but they don't see him. Jesus is the prophet king, hidden in plain sight. The religious rulers, the chief priests and scribes see the wonderful things that Jesus does in verse 15, and the children crying out in the temple, and they are indignant. How dare Jesus allow these children to praise him as the son of David? They see the wonderful things, but they don't draw the right conclusion. The children see and sing. The religious leaders see and are indignant. Again, only on the last day when Jesus returns will every eye see and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. But you have an option for what that will be like. He refused to acknowledge Jesus now, and that acknowledgement on that day will be through gritted teeth, the unwilling acknowledgement of a conquered enemy. But acknowledge Jesus now, and that day will be the joy of your heart, the consummate wedding night of the people of God. It will be something worth singing about. Which brings us then to our last point. We've seen the fact and the manner and the goal and the revelation of Jesus' kingship. Finally, the end of Jesus' kingship. The crowds sing. The children sing. The crowd sing, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. The children sing, Hosanna to the son of David. Hosanna means save now or save please. They recognize their need for a king, a king to come and save. They want Jesus to be that king. And so they praise him with the word Hosanna, singing Psalm 118. The end of Jesus' kingship, the goal is praise. He is the son of David. He is the king of kings. He is the Lord of lords. He is the one who frees us, not just from Rome, but from sin. He is the one who conquers sin in the cross and death in his resurrection. He is the one who brings us not just political freedom in the present age, but total freedom in the hope of the age to come. Jesus is the king in the line of David, humble, riding on a donkey, who came to restore us to God, who will finally be revealed at the last day when every eye will see and every tongue confess and every knee will bow. What do you do with King Jesus? What do you do with this son of David? What do you do with the king of peace? What do you do with the one who died and rose? He comes as a king, humble, riding on a donkey, humble, hanging on a cross, not killing his enemies, but dying for them. Cry out to him, save me, and he will do it. Not from trouble in the present age, he will save you from your sin now, from its guilt and power and shame, and from the troubles of the present age when he returns on the last day and makes all things new. Let's bow our heads and cry out to King Jesus. Let's pray. Our Lord Jesus, we do pray that you would save us, that you would pour out your spirit on us, 
that you would give us hearts of faith in you, that we would trust in you and rest in you and look to you and that you would work. We thank you for dying on the cross. We thank you for coming not with a sword to destroy us, but coming humble and riding on a donkey to die for us. Help us to believe in that and to rest in you. And we pray these things in your name. Amen.